One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. For those of you doing dry January, I have nothing but sympathy. I like to ease the passage of this darkest and coldest of months with plentiful supplies of alcohol. But you know what? Each their own. You do you. I hope you don't think I'm trolling you, because in this episode I'm talking about the greatest of drinks, the greatest of beverages, libations, and that is, of course, champagne. I'm talking to Rebecca Gibb. She's a master of wine. She is a ninja who can sniff out a Merlot from a Margot at 50 paces. But I know nothing at all about wine. I like drinking it, but I don't know anything at all. And so she was here to school me on the history of the good stuff. This will blow your mind when you hear about American grapes in France. It is brilliant. This is a back episode of the podcast recorded a few years ago, and I want to repeat it now because it is so good. It was thoroughly enjoyed at the time. We've had lots of listeners who've joined us since. So I hope everyone enjoys this. When I talked to her, she just researched and written a amazing paper on the riots that tore through the region of Champagne just for the First World War as small wine growers rose up against, guess who? The big commercial wine growers that had monopolistic tendencies. Yep, sounds familiar, folks. This story has it all. It's got invasive species, globalization, climate crisis, geostrategic rivalry, super brands, booze, and fashionable artisanal production. It's very modern. Like everything in history, we talk about the past, but Really, we're sort of talking about today as well. If you want to go and subscribe to History at TV, it's the world's best history channel. Pour yourself a glass of champagne, folks, or English sparkling white, or whatever flipping drink you like. Pour yourself a glass of something. Sit down in front of your smart TV, your screen of choice, and just go to History Hit TV and enter a world of history. Netflix for history. A proper history channel for proper history fans. No aliens. No aliens on there. No Hitler popping up in Argentina. No actual history, things that have actually happened. If you follow the link in the description of this podcast, it'll take you there. You get two weeks free if you sign up today. And you can join the ever-growing army of History Hit TV subscribers. It'd be great to have you along. But in the meantime, folks, here is Rebecca Gibb. Enjoy. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. You asked nicely. Uh, yeah, I did ask nicely. I've repeatedly. I've been trying to get it for ages. I know. You're a busy man, as am I, and I'm a busy lady. So, uh, champagne, was it always the luxury brand of alcoholic grape juice? Well, it hasn't actually always been sparkling until the sort of the late 17th century, early 18th. It was still very much a still wine. It's amazing to hear that most of the wines were actually red rather than white. So, champagne was a red, flat wine. Yeah, and you can still get... Red flat wine from Champagne. Bollinger makes one. There's a village called Boozy, which specialises in rouge, so Boozy Rouge. I know, you couldn't think of a better name, could you? So it, was, it wasn't sparkling until maybe early 18th century, and 
they didn't really have a grasp over how it was becoming sparkling at that point. It isn't until winemaking technology comes along in the 19th century that we actually get a hold on what makes champagne sparkling and and what it what it would look like today. So people in the 18th century, when when you when you get like characters and Dickens, they drink champagne. It's just this weird fizzy wine that's coming out, and no one quite knows why it's fizzy. Well. There isn't a lot of scientific knowledge around wine until the likes of Lavoisier and Chapdel and Pasteur come along. Uh, until then, it's really what they've been doing before. What did their fathers do? What did other monks do? Uh, it really was just a case of observation. How cool! Mm. So okay, so we've got okay. So champagne. When did it become the sort of the poshest version of wine? Well, actually, in Restoration London, there was an exile called Charles de saint Evremond, who is buried in Port's Corner in Westminster. He comes along to Restoration England and he introduces champagne to the royal court. And that's when its first association really comes with luxury. In the early 1800s, the czars and princes were starting to drink it, but there wasn't a lot of it going around at that time. I think there's some statistics that say in about the early 1800s, there's probably around 300,000 bottles of sparkling champagne being made. There's not a lot of it going around. There's lots of people who want to drink it, so it necessarily has a high price. So really it is only reserved for high society at that time. And can other parts of France make fizzy wine today? Anyone can make fizzy wine in the same way as champagne. You can use the champagne method, which means that you do a second fermentation in the bottle. So fermentation is sugar plus yeast makes alcohol and carbon dioxide. So you do your first fermentation to make a still base wine and then you put it into a bottle. You add some sugar, you add some yeast. Byproducts are carbon dioxide and alcohol and the carbon dioxide is trapped in the bottle and that's what, where you get the sparkle from so it's a, a, a bottle fermented sparkling wine you can do that anywhere but you can only call it champagne if it is from the area that is champagne and that was one of the major reasons for the riots in 1911 which we'll talk i'm sure we're going to talk about at some point tell me about these riots that's why i was talking to you what on earth is going with the champagne riots well, obviously, champagne is associated with luxury. It has been, as I say, since sort of Restoration England. And yet there is great poverty in the Champagne region in the early 1900s. There's lots of factors involved in the Champagne riots. But really the catalyst for the riots that take place in spring 1911 is that people have basically got no money. Bread prices are skyrocketing and they had a total fail, failure of a harvest in September 1910, which means they've got no grapes to sell. Times are tough. So that's the catalyst. But trouble has been fermenting in Champagne for at least 20 years before the riots take place. Why? What's wrong with Champagne? What's wrong with France in the, for the French wine industry in the late 19th century is one of the big problems that the country faces at this time is a thing called phylloxera. Phylloxera is a, an aphid and it goes around nibbling on the roots of vines. It eats the sap and it also, when it goes on its merry way, leaves wounds behind which any disease can therefore access. It comes from America and in 1862, a vine grower in a village just north of Avignon 
receives a present from an American friend. He receives some vines. It doesn't go so well then. Within two years of him planting these vines, he notices these galls on the leaves, on the vines. The vines are dying. Several miles away, the same thing is happening. So this is happening early 1860s. By 1900, 2.5 million hectares of vines in France have been uprooted because phylloxera has basically ravaged France's vineyards. People use various methods to try and cure it, but they're really, you can't just deal with the symptoms. People are injecting a nerve poison, carbon disulfide, into the soil in an attempt to prevent its spread. It works for a while. It's not so, it's not so effective. The government, the French government also up, offers a 20,000 franc reward for a cure. And there are some fanciful cures offered up, including a marching band playing in the vines. And there's also uh, burying a live toad and other, and other such useless ideas. But what they had to really do was they had to graft their vines onto the rootstock of an American vine. And that is the only cure for phylloxera. Are you telling me that all the French vines in France today are descended from American vines? I am telling you that all the vines across the world that are vitis vinifera, that are international, like Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay, they are all grafted onto the rootstock of an American vine. Is that big news for you? Yeah. I mean, my French brother, I've half brother is French, really, and he's going to have a heart attack when he hears that. Sorry, man. Yeah, it's true. But if, there, if it wasn't for American, what are known as American rootstocks, there would be no French wine industry today. Really? Yeah. So that process is now going on the late 19th century. Yeah. Sounds expensive. It's very expensive. It's not necessarily the cost of the wood to create the new vine. It's actually the cost of uprooting your entire vineyard and then replanting it. If you want to replant a vineyard, you have to wait between three and five years for a crop. Oh, my goodness. So there are the, a lot of these vineyards having to rip out their vines and then they're having to replant at great expense. They haven't really got any life savings left. They don't have any assistance from the government to do this. And then on top of that, in the early 1900s, there are crop failures through mildew. There's lots of rain, there's rot. People aren't able to harvest. They've got, then this is one of the great problems for Champagne and the rest of the country in 1910, that they've got a string of failed harvests on top of having to replant huge financial problems. You're listening to Dan Snow's History Hits. We're talking about champagne. More coming up, I wish. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, 
Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are most grape producers in the spirit, they kind of artisanal who then give their grapes to the local vineyard? I mean, how, so, so they're not, they're mm. smallholders, are they? Champagne has a unique structure in that it's very fragmented and people who own vineyard parcels own very small vineyard parcels and they don't have the infrastructure to produce the wine. So that's why you've got the likes of Merton Chandon or Louis Roderer, their champagne houses, they don't own enough vineyards today even today to fulfill all their needs to make their wine so what happens is there are grape growers and there are wine producers in champagne and the grape growers are selling their grapes to these big houses on negociant and if they haven't got any grapes to sell what are you gonna do the, the champagne houses however have got reserve stocks from previous vintages so they're able to draw on these reserves in difficult times so they're not as, as highly affected and you've got the first war on the horizon, which is not easy in Champagne either. But anyway, so let's talk about where are the riots? So the riots start to occur in the first three, four months of 1911. Oh, 1911, turbulent year. And the harvesters failed in September 1910. They harvested around 2% of what they would do on average. 1907 was a terrible harvest. 1908 was a terrible harvest. 1909 was a very small harvest, although the quality was good. And then you get this absolute cataclysmic harvest in 1910. So no one's got any grapes to sell. And yet this is the time when champagne sales are at record highs. People are drinking a lot of champagne by now. Champagne sales almost double between 1890 and 1910. So you've got 300,000 bottles being sold in the 1800s to these czars and princes, 39 million bottles by 1909. But there are no grapes. So where's all the wine coming from? It's not coming from the Marne department or the Aube department, which is the traditional heartland of champagne production. So you're all your big champagne producers are buying in the grapes from elsewhere? The unscrupulous ones are, yes. They are buying in grapes from the Languedoc, thank you to the railways in the 19th century, and, and also lots of the wines coming from the Loire Valley. They are being trucked in by rail to Epinay Station, and then they're going into the cellars of these negociants, and they're coming out sparkling and with a champagne label on it. People are pissed off. And, and people, therefore, blame lots of the negociants for depressing grape prices. Supply and, de supply and demand economics suggests that if your sales are at record highs and your grape harvest is at a record low, 
the price for grapes is going to necessarily be high. However, that doesn't work when... You can cheat. You can cheat. And so all of these grape growers in Champagne mm. take matters in their own hands? Yes, they do. Things come to a head in April 1911. Things have been boiling in the first few months of 1911. There are isolated incidents of villagers going into one of the, some of the merchants' houses and basically tipping, emptying casks down the street of glass bottles being strewn all around the, all around the village. And obviously nobody was saying anything. The police would arrive and everyone would be back in their houses. But things come to a head in April 1911. The government have been moderately involved in coming up with some regulations to prevent fraud from happening. But they've been dilly-dallying and they haven't been implementing these laws. And the producers are just sick of it. And so in April 1911 they take to the streets and they take to the vineyards. And in the village of Ai, which is where Bollinger is based, for example, there are barricades put up, there are champagne houses burnt to the ground, and the government by that time has already brought in troops. So there are troops stationed in Champagne to try and maintain peace. They've seen that trouble is fermenting since, nine, since the 1910 harvest failed and they are trying to keep cap on it. But there are too many vignerons. And in April 1911, they do around the equivalent of about a million pounds worth of damage to various Champagne houses. And there are about 40,000 vines that are trampled or burnt or raised. It's, it's quite interesting to know that a lot of those vines that were damaged belonged to the unscrupulous merchants. There is a book called The Livre Noir des Assassins. So basically, an anonymous pamphlet has been produced in early 1911 that lists down all those producers who are thought to be acting fraudulently. And it's interesting to know that the champagne houses that were targeted in these attacks were the ones listed in this book. Okay, so it's, um, it's action, quite directed action at these, uh, at these houses. What is the effect? Do the, does the government, the troops, and the, uh, they crack down presumably not on the fraudsters, but on the, the people rioting? Absolutely. Uh, and in the town of Epinay on the same day, the cavalry charges at another protest and villagers on the street are opening their doors for people to escape the sabres that are being swung at them. But that because of the violence incited on these days in April, a lot of people turn against the vignerons. Um, they didn't like the violence. One of the, one of the cinema, local cinema owners, he went out into the street to film what was happening to then show it in his cinema, in his theatre. And it actually turns out that the police then sees this film and use it almost as CCTV and they arrest 150 people that they see on this film. As a result, arrests are made and then trials take place in a mining town an hour to the north of Vepinay uh, in Douai. Uh, there's a trial of around 46 people. But the jurors are all miners they, and they take pity on the vignerons. They, they're experiencing similar hardship at this time and there are only a few that are actually convicted. 
What is the long-term impact of, of these riots? It's interesting to note that tensions that were fermenting then start to go on a simmer after the riots. The government has decided that it will create a zone where you can only make champagne and it's now going to implement those measures. So the riots worked? In a way, yes, the riots kind of worked. The government agrees to implement the measures around the zone of champagne. So now there is what the an embryonic, what we call an appellation. They also have an area about 100 kilometres to the south called the Aube who want to be part of Champagne. And this was part of the, this was part of the tensions. The Marne wanted to just to be Champagne, but the Aube, which is where, near Troyes, which is the historical centre of the Champagne region, they also want to be part of Champagne for reasons of history. And so that what the, the government does, it's, it creates, the Marne is the most prestigious Champagne zone, but you can also create Champagne as a deuxième, a second zone in the Aube. It's a bit of fudging, but it works for now. These riots are happening in April and by May and June, the vines are flowering again. It's time to get back into the vineyards for these vignerons to get ready for the next harvest, which turns out to be bountiful. And those economic issues are less pressing once they have grapes to sell. Did everything go back to the way it was before or were there, were there changes in the relationships between the, 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 the grape growers and champagne houses? Did they forgive them? The big champagne houses, the big famous names, tended not to be the ones that were committing fraud. The tension between the grower and the houses persists to this day because prices, the prices of the grapes each year are decided. And there's always, the houses want them cheaper and the growers want them to be more expensive. And there's that tension, that structural tension within Champagne, which continues to this day. As people around the world want to drink Champagne, there's enough grapes, are they? They've managed to produce more and more grapes, I guess. Or do they sneak them in? They do not sneak them in. However, in 2008, when champagne sales were at a record high, funnily enough, the INAO, which is the legal body for appellations in France, they announced that they were going to do a review of the champagne area and that they were looking at increasing the vineyard area by about a thousand hectares. Its, it's timing was impeccable, shall we say. They're still doing the analysis of the sites. But should you be on the right side of the border, your land will be around you know, a million euros a hectare. If you land the wrong side of the border, you might be selling your land for about 5,000 euros a hectare. Wait, 5,000? Well, if you can't plant vines in Champagne, you can plant cereals. That's the difference, a million versus 5,000. Wow. If you're in a Grand Cru vineyard in Champagne, you're going to be paying at least €2 million Euros a hectare. Hectare is not very big. Uh, it's only a matter of time before we're sitting here and you're telling me that the French have decided that there's a little area of southern China that they're going to allow to be grown uh, <laughs> Champagne. I can see it. Well, thank you so much. That was a, what a what weird and wonderful story uh, into an industry that we all think we know about. Um, is your book just about Champagne? Okay, so I'm going to be writing a book about the history of wine fraud, and I'm currently about 20,000 words deep into it. I'm working with my agent on that, and it should be ready to submit to publishers by April, fingers crossed. And I hope that it would be out in 
maybe 18 months to two years. So perhaps I'll come back here and chat to you about more dodgy dealings in the wine industry. Thanks folks, you've made the end of another episode. Congratulations, well done you. I hope you're not fast asleep. If you did fancy supporting everything we do here at History Hit, we'd love it if you would go and wherever you get these pods, give it a little rating, five stars or its equivalent. A review would be great. Thank you very much indeed. That really does make a huge difference. It's one of the funny things the algorithm loves to take into account. So please don't ever do that. It can seem like a small thing, but actually it's kind of a big deal for us. So I really appreciate it. See you next time. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Snow at checkout.